Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. Today we interview Ranjit Kudali, Dean of the USD Graduate School, about the importance of graduate education and the benefits of researching issues on a vibrant liberal arts campus. Ranjit, how are you doing this morning? I am fine. Thank you, Michael. Um, I just first want to break down you. You do a lot at USD, I think would be is an understatement. You're a professor of chemistry. You're also the dean of the graduate school. And we were just speaking a few moments ago before we kind of hit you know, record. I, I feel bad. I don't even know if I knew the depths and sort of magnitude of just the work that the graduate school does. Can you just maybe talk a little bit about what your role is with the graduate school and how significant a part that plays with everything that we do in South Dakota from research to workforce development, um, et cetera? Absolutely, yeah. It's a great question. So uh, we are the largest provider of graduate education in South Dakota. We have over 75 graduate programs spread across all the schools and colleges, uh, the School of Law the state's only college of fine arts. Uh, We have an accredited AACSB, uh, Beacom School of Business. We have graduate programs in natural sciences, humanities, and social sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences. We have School of Health Sciences graduate programs, the Sanford School of Medicine, and we have a a graduate program uh, housed in the graduate school as well. So we have several types of graduate uh, programs, starting from graduate certificates, which were a sequence of three, four, or five courses so uh, students can uh, get a graduate degree uh, with as little as nine credits or sometimes as large as 15 credits. So they can complete a graduate certificate in about within a year's time. And then we have the master's uh, programs. We have a master of arts, master of science, uh, master's in music, master of social work, ma- master's in public uh, health, master's in professional um, uh, account uh, accountancy, master's in public administration across. And we have over 35 uh, graduate programs at the master's level. Typically, we can complete these in two years, excepting the MFA program in fine arts, which takes about three years, and it's a terminal degree. And then we have a specialist program and then a doctoral programs, professional doctoral programs, JD, uh, being the state's only school of law. Uh, Over 70% of the lawyers in South Dakota come through our fine uh, school of law. And we have an MD program. Uh, 50% of practicing physicians come through the Sanford School of Medicine. And likewise, we have a lot of niche PhD programs. Our uh, professional programs include Doctor of Audiology, a doctorate in physical therapy, doctorate in occupational therapy, and so on. So we have administrative oversight of all but uh, the graduate programs in the School of Law and the MD and the MD-PhD in the School of Medicine. Yeah, maybe this is self-explanatory. Maybe you just kind of explained it, but how important is it, you know, in terms when we just look at the breadth of the number of graduate programs we have in terms of, I guess, distinguishing USD? What, it, what about the graduate programs makes USD distinct? Absolutely. So... Uh, When you look at uh, our uh, surrounding states, Iowa, 
Minnesota, Nebraska, uh, and Wyoming, um, there are uh, similar programs, uh, graduate programs as us. But in terms of uh, the niche, for example, I can take uh, the Center for Brain uh, Behavior Research, a topic that we will go into fairly depth. That is something unique, the kind of uh, neuroscience research uh, that is being done by faculty, not only from uh, the basic biomedical sciences, but from chemistry, but from biology, but also from the School of Education, psychology, uh, communication sciences and disorders. So this kind of interdisciplinary research is facilitated by having uh, a flagship institution, having multiple schools and colleges, and it brings about faculty who have different expertise, uh, work collaboratively, and provide new knowledge that would not have been otherwise possible without this collaboration. So the fact that we have these eight schools and colleges lends itself to collaborative research and helps advance new knowledge, helps, um, helps us invent uh, new things, uh, report new discoveries, and train a new generation of undergraduate and graduate students. So this is something unique that I feel, and also, the size of our graduate programs are relatively small in comparison to some of our larger institutions. And what it allows is for graduate students to receive that one-on-one, -on -one, that personal attention. I have individually trained a large number of undergraduate and graduate students. So they get that training, uh, that uh, skills, they learn it uh, from someone who has been in that uh, discipline for 10, 20 years, rather than some new graduate student who may not know all the nuances. So that distinguishes ourselves, our small uh, research groups, the small size of graduate programs allow for very close interaction between the graduate students and our instructors and research mentors. Yeah, that was something I wanted to get into. Before we you know, get into the research was just the work that you do sort of on the administrative side. And you know, last year I know that you kind of took it upon yourself. You hosted um, a, a competition that we called Three Minute Thesis, which I think kind of has a, a national uh, umbrella organization. But the essence of it was, was kind of teaching um, graduate level students who are often dealing with incredibly complicated, um, sophisticated ideas that usually involve a lot of technical jargon and you know, figuring out and teaching them a way that they can present this research in an understandable manner, um, whether that's you know trying to maybe persuade a, a, you know someone who holds the the keys to a research grant, um, you know whether that's explaining the importance to the general public. And I thought that was uh, even at the time I thought that was unique. That like I don't know if many other like big flagship universities, public universities, like the dean of a school is taking such an active effort, like individually coaching students like before they have to like go compete in a, in a competition. I mean, I don't know if you can talk about that program, what the intent of that was, and, and maybe some of the results that have, have come from it. Oh, thank you, Michael. So uh, when I stepped into this role, uh, Michael, uh, one thing that I noticed was that faculty, uh, most of them are actually um, serving as mentors and professionally developing the graduate students. But we have not uh, institutionalized uh, professional development. And so in collaboration with Academic Career and Planning Center and with other like-minded uh, uh, folks in the campus, uh, like the Marketing Office of Research, for example, Center for Teaching and Learning, Dr. Bruce Kelly, we have um, 
done an inventory of activities uh, that each of these uh, support centers are doing, and we have tried to publicize where possible. We have gone to um, uh, colleges or schools or chairs meeting and have uh, strongly urged uh, to promote these events. So one of the things that I quickly realized is that uh, we don't uh, brag about ourselves, if you will, or even not uh, talk uh, in a manner that the public can truly understand uh, our research. And it becomes uh, challenging uh, for several graduate students who have not had a training in science communication to effectively uh, speak so that uh, someone uh, in the public, their grandmother, for example, or someone at the eighth grade level can truly understand what research is being done, the importance of that research, and why continued funding from the federal level and the state level is important to advance uh, scientific knowledge and discoveries. So the three-minute thesis started uh, at the University of Queensland uh, about 10 years ago, and I realized that we do not have such a competition here, and it would be a wonderful experience, not only for our uh, graduate students uh, to effectively hone their communication skills, but also for the faculty, staff, and the public, and the community to know the fine and great research that is being done by talented graduate students here at USD. And so in this uh, regard, we had an information session where, uh, Michael, you had helped us. Uh, we had a theater faculty, Dr. Patricia Downey. We had a faculty um, from uh, Communication Sciences uh, Department, uh, Dr. Um, Kelly also help us, uh, Shane Semler help us, and so we are actually going to do this again. We will have uh, a information session for the 3MT thesis, but this time uh, late fall, and we'll reach out to uh, uh, people like you who have the knowledge and skills and can um, uh, give tips to our graduate students. I think uh, communicating uh, effectively the importance of the science that we do, uh, the graduate research that we do, is very critical uh, so that the public can understand, our legislators can understand, and help us support uh, higher educational institutions. So I hope I'm not going to put you on the spot, but you know, originally when we talked about doing a podcast, we were discussing a specific research project that you've been involved with. Um, and I don't even know if I know how to pronounce all of the words, I'm just going to be honest with you. So I maybe should let you uh, start with it, but it, it deals with this problem of maybe the, the I think you said the um, blood-brain barrier um, sort of being the significant problem. And, and I don't know if, if that's enough of a prompt to maybe um, kind of lead you into to the research that you're conducting with other faculty here on campus. So this is a, a very interesting, Michael. So my original area of research that I was trained was in trying to harness solar energy effectively. So uh, my two projects uh, uh, were uh, solar energy for uh, converting the incident light radiation into chemical fuels, and also trying to harness solar energy to uh, solve environmental problems, such as remove pollutants. And then uh, there was this interesting conversation that happened in a parking lot. So Dean Robin Miskimens and I were coming out from a meeting, uh, and uh, Dean Miskimens had mentioned that uh, one of uh, her colleagues, Dr. Gina Foster, uh, working in the neurosciences division, had difficulties in um, 
one of her projects. The challenge was that she was uh, using a neuropeptide called ASV30. It's a long chain um, molecule. Because of its high molecular weight, uh, it was not crossing the blood-brain barrier. It was very effective in reducing anxiety in rats, but she had difficulties in um, finding ways and means to allow these uh, anxiety-reducing uh, neuropeptide to cross the blood-brain barrier. And in passing, I just mentioned that, well, you know, maybe you should use a nanoparticle and it'll solve the problem. And I just walked to, to my office, and uh, Dean Miskimens went to her office. And I was just curious. Uh, I thought it was a crazy idea that I had. And after uh, searching diligently in the literature, I did uh, notice that certain types of nanoparticles were indeed used as uh, cargo or transport materials to cross the blood-brain barrier. And that is how this collaborative work uh, started. You know, you mentioned the, the significance. What is significance about this? What kind of applications does it have, um, you know, for mental disorders, things like anxiety, things like schizophrenia? Um, how significant might research like this be? Oh, absolutely. So just to give an idea uh, what this blood-brain barrier is, it is a very effective me mechanism that nature has devised so that very harmful organisms like viruses or bacteria or harmful chemicals will not go to the brain. So it is a, a protective barrier, but at the same time it poses challenges because only very small molecules glucose, oxygen, water, etc. can cross the blood-brain barrier. Essential nutrients that are uh, needed for the growth of the brain can cross. So when you want to treat uh, diseases of the brain, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, these drug molecules are relatively large, they're hydrophobic, they don't love water, and so it is very hard for these molecules to penetrate these tight junctions that are at the blood-brain barrier. So that is the challenge that um, uh, organic um, chemists have, they design these wonderful molecules uh, that uh, potentially can cure diseases of the brain, but they just cannot penetrate because nature has perfected this mechanism to prevent entry of anything that it deems as harmful. So what we are... Um, doing is trying to use knowledge from nanosciences or nanotechnology. And it has been reported that certain uh, oxide materials, when made at appropriate sizes, can be transported across the blood-brain barrier. And that knowledge, combined with the knowledge from years of research from Dr. Gina Foster, is uh, what we are using to find new cures and new paradigms for solving uh, such complicated and long-standing problems. You know, this leads right into, um, and, and you mentioned it before, the Center for Brain and Behavioral Research. You know, we had Brian Burrell on um, not too long ago, and, and he talked about the significant work and kind of gave us a little bit of the history of how that center was established here at USD. I don't know if you can just talk about, you know, if there's any other research that you do with that group. And uh, like I said, I mean, I, I think it's super interesting. I mean, that's the joy, and, and we've talked about this, of working at a, a campus like this, is that you just, the, the connections that you make, you, you don't necessarily realize them, maybe in the moment, how significant they are, but when you get enough smart people together, it, it's, it's amazing sort of what results. How, was that sort of your first exposure then with, with brain and behavioral research? Was that, or was that something that maybe like you always had an idea that maybe you'd get into? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, 
during my initial years at USD, I was trying to um, expand my area of research from just uh, energy and the environment and having uh, a wonderful um, resource here, the state's only medical school, I gravitated towards uh, establishing uh, contacts and collaboration with faculty at the Sanford School of Medicine. And so I had a collaborator, uh, Dr. Manna, he, he has left USD, and so we actually published uh, a few papers uh, wherein we used nanoparticles to um, uh, treat um, antibacterial infections. So we actually uh, demonstrated that some zinc oxide, which is actually used in many um, sunscreen uh, uh, blocks and sunscreen lotions, can be used to treat uh, gram-positive, gram-negative bacteria like, like Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, and so on, and, very, and E. coli and several other uh, strains of bacteria could be completely eliminated by using nanoparticles of zinc oxide. And so I was uh, constantly looking for collaborations because uh, chemists, uh, especially nanoscientists, are, are now gravitating towards biomedical applications. Other functions like catalytic have been explored for the last 15, 20 years, and the new um, Frontier areas are biomedical applications because um, pharmaceutical companies have kind of hit a roadblock with the pipeline of drugs. Most of them are organic in nature, and um, in trying to identify uh, new drug molecules, these hybrid molecules where you have an inorganic uh, nanoparticle and an organic drug molecule have become uh, an area uh, that is fascinating. Uh, to the drug companies as well. So I was uh, looking for collaborations, and this chance conversation in a parking lot led to submission of an internal grant that was funded, and we had a fantastic undergraduate student, uh, Mr. Nate Vincent, uh, and uh, he carried out, uh, in collaboration with Dr. Gina Foster, the animal studies, and we uh, did the synthesis work. So that was the first seed. At the same time, there were uh, collaborative projects going on between other faculty in chemistry and the basic biomedical sciences. My colleagues in chemistry, Dr. Sereda, Dr. Hauran Soon, and now Dr. Jiang, have initiated collaborations and have made progresses in uh, either publishing and or even uh, inventing and disclosing some discoveries. And so um, Dr. Brian Burrell and I uh, looked for uh, grant opportunities to see how we can actually submit grants, expand these collaborations, and after three attempts, uh, we got a, uh, a, a grant from the National Science Foundation uh, titled Understanding the Brain, and it has led to the establishment of the University of South Dakota Neuroscience Nanotechnology and Networks Program. This grant allows for interdisciplinary research between materials chemists, bioinformatics, and neuroscientists, and provides uh, an interdisciplinary research training and professional development of graduate students, either in biology, materials chemistry, uh, biomedical engineering, and neuroscience. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, I guess, as a follow-up, was what, what is the role of the, the student in this research? Um, I mean, it, it some of this flies over my head, just being honest with you, but I can imagine even if you are schooled in organic chemistry, this is pretty sophisticated research. How, how do you kind of break them into thinking beyond maybe just 
you know, the small project maybe they did an undergrad or, or, you know, the traditional kind of textbook learning that maybe they had to do and really sort of get their hands dirty in a laboratory, actually, you know, going through with the research and that process. How, how does that process work? So um, when you, we look at many of the problems that we are confronted uh, in the society or societal problems, take energy, for example, take the environment, take health, no one single discipline can no longer provide solutions. So I'm drawing from my experiences in solar energy conversion. I have collaborated with chemical engineers, with um, electrical engineers, and we have published papers. And so I've realized the need for a faculty with um, complementary expertise to come together and provide their insight to solve problems. So it is clear from the research of Dr. Regina Foster that she really had this challenge. She could not deliver this neuropeptide that is known to reduce anxiety on her own. And I had the knowledge to make nanoparticles. And by bringing a team of uh, research consisting of undergraduate students and graduate students on the same table and um, discussing uh, terminologies and trying to put this whole research problem in perspective is a first uh, start. And I should admit, in the first, you know, when you read a paper from neurosciences, um, you don't fully understand all the nuances. But having group meetings where we have participation of people with different backgrounds allow us to understand the terminologies from multiple disciplines. So what we have in this NRT grant is a primary advisor. Uh, and a secondary advisor. So we hope that graduate students work not only in a primary advisor's lab, but actually go physically to the secondary advisor's lab, uh, go to their group meetings, learn skills, techniques, understand the terminologies, and bring their knowledge to the second group, and in the same process, learn from the group members uh, belonging to the second advisory. So this way, we have a good cross-fertilization of ideas, skills, techniques, and collectively, these two research groups, uh, they um, develop uh, a new product or uh, design a new drug molecule or a new nanomaterial with en enhanced functionalities. And in this process, uh, we better understand uh, the problem that uh, we are trying to solve and find creative solutions that would not have been possible. So interdisciplinary research and interdisciplinary graduate education is uh, very critical in this day and age. So as a wearing my graduate dean hat, uh, uh, I've been trying to promote interdisciplinary research. We now have uh, two graduate programs in sustainability, a Master of Science and a PhD in sustainability, and it's the same idea. It brings together faculty from English department, from the business school, from biology, from uh, earth sciences, chemistry, and so on. And so collectively, we can advance knowledge that would not have been possible uh, from just one discipline alone. You know, and this is maybe kind of gearing us towards the conclusion. I mean, sure. I, I, 
and, and part of this is, and I don't want to get too wrapped up in in my generation's, um, you know, education, secondary education experience. But I think a lot of people from my era, we we came of age during the Great Recession. Um, you know, in, in some sense, graduate school was an attractive option, right? When we, when we couldn't find employment, um, but. You know, I think there was this sense, at least for me, that I didn't want to go to graduate school unless I I knew it was going to benefit me, right? I, I didn't I didn't want it to just be like another degree. I wanted it to serve a particular purpose. What is your argument to a prospective, um, you know, student who goes, hey, I might be able to get a job. It might not be the job I necessarily want, but I, I'm not necessarily sure the utility of a graduate program is the best thing for me. Like, what is your kind of cl your closing argument, if I can ask you, um, to really encourage them to to kind of you know take that step and, and take a chance on a graduate degree? Absolutely. So uh, there are two arguments uh, I would make. One is a personal. Uh, graduate education, by definition, has high rigor. There is high expectation, and uh, there are higher standards at the graduate level compared to the undergraduate level. So if someone, um, for someone who is driven, motivated, it is a personal recognition that they have uh, gotten a master's or a PhD. So it validates them, and that personal validation uh, is important for several people. But there is also a moral and a societal uh, uh, good that comes from graduate education. And when we look at our uh, physicians, we look at our physical therapists, our occupational therapists, our school teachers, our school administrators, uh, most faculty at higher ed institutions, uh, our uh, professional accountants, etc. all of them have graduate degrees. What we get at the undergraduate level, Michael, is the fundamentals. It is at the graduate level that we get these higher learning thinking, uh, the higher uh, skills. Uh, and so if you have a graduate degree, you have the license, the credentials, the knowledge, the skills, and the tools to contribute effectively to the society. So there is a large body of evidence to show that uh, towns and cities that have a higher um, population of graduate students have lower crime. There is greater civility because we can understand and respect our cultural differences. We, we students with advanced degrees, which are typically graduate degrees, understand that we are living in a pluralistic society. There are people with far different religious, personal uh, beliefs, lifestyle choices. We embrace them and we accept them. So graduate education is good for the society. There is less crime. There is greater acceptance of people different than you. And collectively, it brings about peace in the society. So there is this personal argument for an individual but there's also this higher moral and societal argument that I can make for graduate education. For my last question, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, well, maybe you don't have to take the dean cap off. Maybe, sure. maybe it's very much informed um, you know, by your experience here at USD, but I think you've lived an interesting life. We have not delved into your background as much as I wanted to, just how, how, how you got to a place like USD, I think, is always curious to me, because well, I always think that this is, a unique community it attracts, I think, a unique type of person, and it is what makes Vermilion in my, in my head like why I love it so much. But for our last question, at this point in your life, with everything that you've done, the research that you've you've been 
been able to perform, uh, the students that you've been able to mentor and teach. What do you know for sure? Just like they say, you know, debt and taxes are forever. <laughs> I would say graduate <laughs> education is forever. There are challenges we face in South Dakota uh, just because um, uh, there are some uh, uh, barriers, systemic barriers that uh, we are um, striving hard to remove. But it is uh, um, graduate education that provides one with this advanced skills and knowledge. All that you will learn in law school would not have been possible at the undergraduate level. And so uh, being in an institution uh, and having the opportunity to meet faculty with diverse backgrounds, people coming from uh, Europe, from Africa, from Asia, and from uh, South Dakota and other parts of the United States is actually quite invigorating for me. Uh, I learn from them. Uh, to be a better uh, human being, to be a better faculty, a better administrator. And universities are great places where new ideas can emerge uh, just by talking and by collaboration. So this is a great institution, and I'm blessed and proud uh, to serve as the dean of the graduate school and advanced graduate education. Ranjit, we are happy to have you here in South Dakota, happy to have you here at USD. We're going to have to bring you back on. I know that South Dakota Public Broadcasting steals you often. We're going to have to get you back on the podcast here soon. I want to thank you and Adam for uh, you know t designing this show and uh, wish you all the best. And it's been an honor to uh, talk to you this morning. You know, that is actually a good point. We should recognize our producer who's at every one of these podcasts, Adam Gomez, um, who's uh, a huge part of it and really kind of the impetus for the podcast. So thank you for recognizing him as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.